Hello, and thank you for listening to the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. This unedited audio is taken from Was That Just Luck? The Inconsistent World of Superstition, Privilege, and the Illusion of Control by Aaron Rabinowitz. It was first broadcast live on the 8th of September 2022. A video recording of this and many other talks hosted by Skeptics in the Pub Online is still available on our YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy this podcast and thank you for your support. Hey folks, thank you and thanks Marsh so much for having me back on to once again get up on my hobby horse and talk about luck. Uh, I am to luck as Mike is to placebos. We will both ride this for the end until the end of time. Um, and thank you all, obviously, for showing up on this very auspicious day. I feel very lucky that anybody is here at this particular moment on y'all's side of the pond. Um, if you have been to a previous chat of mine, um, you probably heard me talk about luck before, usually on the philosophical side, because that is my background, ethics and moral luck. Um, but in sort of doing the work recently that I've been doing for my education PhD, I have been diving into the psychological research uh, around luck and its implications in education. And what I have found is, I think, a really rich and fascinating world of inconsistencies, incoherencies, um, idiosyncrasies, just all sorts of izzies as you're trying to understand what human beings actually even mean when they use the word luck. Um, so to get us started, as always, I like to pump people's intuitions a little bit when possible. So we're going to begin with a little game. Uh, luck or not luck. For those who have listened to Embrace the Void, you know that I love games that force people to make horrible choices like this. Um, so if you could join me in the chat, I'm going to give you a list of events. And I'd like to hear your intuitions before I muddy them up with my philosophical and psychological musings um, about whether you think that these particular events count as luck or not. And it can be good luck. It can be bad luck. Uh, the question is just, is this something that you would put into the camp of luck? So thumbs up if you think it is luck. Thumbs down if you think it's not. So first event, the sun rises in the morning. Thumbs up if you think this is an instance of luck. Thumbs down if you think it's not. I see we already have some luck filled people in the chat a little bit. All right, I'll keep moving through these. Right, so be thinking about each of them here. Thumbs up versus thumbs down, whether or not you think this is luck. A person is struck by lightning and survives. A person finishes working five minutes early and so arrives home just in time to save their child from being hit by a car. Is that luck or not? A lot of a lot of ups, a lot of downs in the chat. A lot of yeses on that one, looks like. How about this one? A person comes to believe that Jewish billionaires are grooming everyone to accept consumer transhumanism. There's a little bit of that horror show that Marsh was talking about. In Marsh's case, it's just bad luck that he even has to hear about these things, much less come to believe them. And then one more. A person is born with an illness that causes chronic fatigue making it impossible for them to do strenuous work for extended periods of time. Is that luck, good or bad? This is very fascinating stuff to me. I appreciate y'all taking the time to actually respond because this is the kind of research that I'm doing right now. And it's the, these are specific examples culled from both um, instrument measures for luck, for belief in luck, but also from philosophical literature about what things 
philosophers tend to assume people will claim is luck or not. Um, they also have some important implications, as we will see for my discussion here. Um, one thing to note, though, there was not a lot of universal agreement there on some of these. I think for some of them more than others, you're going to find there is some agreement, but there's going to be some weird differences. Um, so, right, this raises the question, what is luck? How do we define this concept? I actually like maybe some of you perhaps as you, I was asking you for those examples, right? Some of you might, were probably just intuitively scrambling back and forth, trying to figure out how each thing might or might not be luck. Uh, others of you might've tried to come up with a proper definition for what it is for something to be luck and then try to apply that consistently to all of the examples that I was giving. If you did come up with a definition or if you think you have one, go ahead and feel free to share it in the chat now. Um, and while you're doing that, I want to say a little bit broadly speaking about the concept of luck without necessarily giving away what the correct or preferred definitions of various individuals might be. Um, now, luck, as far as I can tell, is a universal concept in the sense that it is a concept that every individual seems to have and every culture seems to have, and all of the cultures, as far as I can tell, seem to have related cultural touchstones like objects, people, phrases, actions. So here's just one example I found from the internet describing sort of the main luck symbols and how they, what they mean in different kinds of cultures. You're all likely familiar with quite a bunch of different uh, such symbols. So it seems like luck is a pervasive concept, which I think is itself interesting because it suggests maybe that it has important implications in our lives if it is playing a role sort of across all of these different cultures. Um, but despite being universal, it seems, especially amongst universal concepts, to be particularly idiosyncratic. Um, there are lots of different accounts that use concepts ranging from chance, fortune, destiny, fate, blessings from a deity. So I've heard all of those be qualified as forms of luck or not, or separate from luck in various kinds of ways, uh, whether in the literature or in research that I've done myself. Um, so I did this past semester as part of my graduate studies, a pilot study, uh, like a, a properly approved, right? So I will not be um, kicked off of anything or whatnot. I was ER, uh, ethics approved to actually do sub test subjects to actually test on humans, um, which I would never expected was going to happen um, as a philosopher. But I got to do interviews of two individuals. And just with those two individuals, I found sort of a wild amount of variation about what they consider to be um, uh, things that are luck or not. Um, and also that they had a wide amount of variation about concepts related to luck. So the most interesting, one of the most interesting data points I found there was that one of the individuals who self-identified as believing substantially in superstitious kinds of luck um, said that they believed in destiny, but that they considered destiny to be somewhat controllable in the sense that you could have pivots and that those pivots would allow you to kind of shift your destiny, which I think I would I would say is in conflict with how probably the majority of people would understand the concept of a destiny as being something that is just kind of set. But uh, and, and that is that is important because if you look at 
the instruments that study belief in things like fatalistic determinism, which is a mindset related to, you know, not potentially related to not believing in free will or believing that everything is luck. Um, what you find is that uh, those measurement systems will use concepts like destiny as if they are kind of effectively synonymous with luck or as if they are definitely meant to mean something that is not under your control. So all of this, I think, um, has lots of significant implications we'll talk about in a second. Um, this variation also happens cross-culturally. So it's not just that there's a lot of mixed stuff going on within individuals. There's also variations across culture. Though, again, this variation has, like the research into this variation, there are lots of reasonable concerns I think we can raise, including the concerns I'm already kind of hinting at, that the instruments by which we measure belief in luck may not be as fine-tuned as we would want them to be. Um, here's another image, by the way, of the kinds of cultural symbols that um, are identified with luck. I like this picture in particular because it shows that a lot of luck symbols kind of interbreed mimetically. So there's a lot of weird cross-cultural stuff where people will take iconography from other cultures and incorporate it into their own as part of their luck symbolism. So in the research, um, they find, for example, just one you know piece of evidence that there is variation culturally. Broadly speaking, they find that uh, individuals from Asian American or sorry, Asian Americans were more likely to endorse superstitious beliefs about luck than non-Asians. And members of Eastern cultures are more likely to think of personal luck as a source of security and optimism in their daily lives. Um, so that is to say, there is higher rates of belief in superstitious kinds of luck and that is treated as a good thing for these individuals because it is viewed as potentially a good thing, or at least a mixed thing, because there is some evidence that believing that you are lucky might actually lead to better outcomes because you take more risks or engage in, you know, you take more chances, you do more things, that kind of um, positive thinking um, approach. Um, now, like I said, this research has various kinds of concerns, right? So I just want to mention the Chetis of the Evil Eye. Um, some of the concerns here would be things like weirdness and colonialism. Um, so weirdness is the the uh, acronym for this idea of uh, there's a particular sort of type of cultural identity that's called Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic, referring to a sort of extreme end of the cultural spectrum, especially with regard to individuality versus community orientation. Um, and so there's some concern that research about luck in general and luck involving other cultures may be impacted by our various weird assumptions about what is luck and how we should think about luck. It may also be impacted by colonial assumptions about things like um, mysticism, so part of the kind of Orientalism um, that colonial, post-colonial scholars criticize is this idea that the East is kind of a, a place of mystic and mystery, um, and the individuals there are more credulous about those kinds of things. Um, 
So we just want to be at least sensitive and aware of those kinds of concerns when we are trying to do this cross-cultural analysis. And I do think this cross-cultural analysis can be really valuable for, you know, because it can teach us about the nature of luck itself, I think, but it can also teach us about how we should tailor our educational approaches to luck to these different societies, cultures, et cetera. There is, though, also various kinds of cultural overlap. So for just to give one example from the literature, um, children across cultures have a more positive perception of individuals they see as lucky and want to be friends with them. So funny, a, a lot of this stuff around luck is actually kind of not not great. You know, it's like we don't want I think I think intuitively we don't want children to view certain individuals as lucky and then view those individuals as people they want to be around because that luck will, I don't know, rub off on them or they can, you know, rely on those people's, you know, good luck for their own benefit in some kind of way. Um, but there is evidence that that is a widespread cultural uh, understanding and that it um, and so that cross, cuts across some of the assumptions that the way that these different cultures are acting on things is largely has to do with individual versus community orientation. Um, so the idea would be that like, there shouldn't be quite as much emphasis on lucky individuals in these non-individualistic kinds of culture, but you do still see that kind of behavior. Um, so there's a lot of complexity to this, um, and the instruments themselves are somewhat problematic. So I'm going to pause here for a second in the search for a definition to try to like explain why this matters, because I think at this point, some of you might be, you know, moving towards checking out like, well, luck is a messy concept. I don't have a good understanding of it, but it doesn't matter. So I'm going to move on with my life. Um, but I think it actually matters a great deal. I think it's one of the most important underdeveloped concepts that we go around with, um, primarily because it plays a significant role in the narratives that we construct about ourselves and others, especially concerning responsibility. So this is something that is studied by the, the field of psychology called attribution theory, which I'll talk about in a second. But intuitively, we're all familiar with this kind of thing. And many of you might have heard of one of the most famous results of attribution theory, which is the fundamental attribution error, or as you know it, when other people do it, it's because they're assholes. And when I do it, it's because environment, because bad situation or something, right? The the approach by which we tell the story where we're the good guys who wouldn't do bad things on purpose and other people are the bad guys who do bad things on purpose. Um, we'll come back to that in a second. Um, so it is important in our personal lives it is also important if we care about understanding the world and ourselves, because as I say, you know, the research into luck, which has implications for things like how we do motivational education in schools, um, that research, I think, is currently underestimating or failing to capture the level of idiosyncrasies that humans have around the concept of luck, um, but it's also failing to capture important regularities, I think, such as it's not doing a good job differentiating between superstitious and, and non-superstitious luck. I've had uh, the great luck of getting to do work on this right now with Lindsay Osterman from Serious Inquiries Only, who's also, I think, done talks for skeptics um, and will also be at QED. Um, so if you want to hear lots of talk about luck, come hang out with us there. Um, but she's been really helpful in helping me understand 
these instruments that are used to measure belief in luck. And we've been sort of formulating criticisms and hoping to formulate uh, an alternative instrument potentially that might sort of better allow us to determine individuals' belief in different kinds of luck in a more fine-grained kind of way. Because currently, primarily a lot of the research is research into superstitious beliefs in things like gambling, um, in relation to things like religion, um, and just broadly speaking, superstitious luck beliefs. Um, there's not a, as much discussion about belief in what I'll, what I'll describe as non-superstitious luck. This then has, as I say, downstream implications for research into things like belief in free will, um, belief in moral responsibility, and by implication, our justice systems, our education systems, every part of our societies. Um, you know, there is some research, for example, that suggests that uh, it would be better not to teach people the things that I'm teaching you right now, because it might have you know, antisocial implications for how you are going to behave. Um, but I think, and we think, um, that that research may be based on, you know, bad analysis and bad measurements, and that better analysis and better measurements would suggest that, like, there is a much better pro-social position that doesn't involve lying to people about things like luck and free will. Finally, since this is a skeptic talk, I think it's important to note that how you understand luck can have real implications for how you do skepticism. Um, specifically, I think how you do it in terms of levels of compassion. Um, we were, um, you know, we do the skeptic mag, the UK one, the one that is done with compassion. Um, and I think you see different results uh, because of that kind of approach. And it, and, and the way you can get there is to some extent better understanding not just luck in people's physical actions, but luck in their mental actions in the sense of the forming of their beliefs, that it is not just your behaviors, but your beliefs that are uh, the result of luck. And that in understanding that you can cultivate at least some amount of compassion and sympathy for the individual who, by, you know, uh, by bad luck comes to believe that billionaire Jews are controlling everyone to set up a dystopian transhumanist nightmare, just to come back to that example, right? So um, that's why I think it matters, right? I think it matters whether we're skeptics, whether we're not skeptics, and as long as we care about truth and understanding. Um, now, how do we define it then, right? So coming back to that question, I want to spend a second here talking about attribution theory because I think this is just genuinely fascinating psychological stuff. Um, and I think you'll see implications in a range of kind of skeptical discourse. So what is attribution theory? Attribution theory is the study of how people attribute causes to events. So you have an event and you want to understand why did that thing happen? One of the most basic, I think, not just human, but I think all species probably to some extent have some version of that. We just have a very sophisticated version of it. Um, and we tell ourselves very complicated attribution narratives, as I was explaining um, before. Those attribution narratives are often broken down in attribution theory uh, across a couple of axes. So the, the original famous axes are internal versus external, right? Was it inside of me? or was the cause outside of me? Um, then you have stable versus unstable. Um, these, uh, sorry, I was going back for a second. So, so for example, right, uh, in, in education, the 
thing that they're often interested in when they study attribution is student outco- student outcomes on things like tests, right? So does the student, you know, if they failed the test, that do they believe that they failed it because they just are bad at taking tests? Do they think they failed it because it was a bad test day for them? Um, in that sense, it would be something external and controllable potentially, um, something unstable, right? And what you what they come to are things like. You don't want your students attributing, you know, bad outcomes to um, unchangeable or stable features because then they'll just give up. Right. You want them to attribute them to things that are unstable and controllable and therefore probably internal. Right. And so you want them to think that things like hard work are what drove their, you know, lack of hard work was what drove their failure. And if they worked harder, they could succeed more. Or if they, you know, failed because it was just, you know, they worked really hard and it was just bad luck on that particular one. But if they try again and keep working hard, they'll have better luck next time or something like that. Right. There's a lot of complexities to what the better and worse kinds of attributions are. But one of the core one of the core features that you find in those theories is that they basically kind of divide things up into external, which is usually luck, which is treated as synonymous with chance, which is one of the definitions that folks are putting forward in the chat. Um, or the attributions are to ability or to hard work or to the task difficulty, which is separated from chance. Um, So chance there is very much just like very random, like what questions were randomly assigned to you kind of things. Um, We'll come back to why I think that is not an ideal approach in a second. Um, But I want to use this, these axes a little bit to kind of give you a sense of just how many different definitions of luck there are running around. Um, So, just in the camp of superstitious kinds of luck, right? You have, for example, the lady luck account of luck. So this is one you find often amongst uh, gamble- gamblers. Um, they don't know for sure whether um, you know gambling fallacies and other kinds of superstitious belief are driving um, compulsive or, or problematic gambling, but there is some evidence of a consistent correlation, at least, between these kinds of beliefs and that kind of behavior. Um, so the Lady Luck version would be visualizing luck as an external, stable entity that you can actually have a relationship with, right? That you can influence in some way. You can make it happy or mad at you. If you act ethically, it will favor you in some kind of way. Um, Now, you can also, though, have an internal sort of property-based account. We could call this like a lucky stiff account, right? The individual who just happens to be lucky. It isn't that there's some being out there in the universe that makes them lucky. It's just... Something, you know, again, superstitious, some sort of internal feature. Both of the individuals who I uh, interviewed for my um, exploratory study, either by selection bias on their part, um, and this is not meant to be sort of indicative, obviously, of of the nature of everyone, but both of them happened to actually believe in, that they themselves were this sort of lucky individual and the people around them also believed it. So they had several individuals around them and they told me stories about individuals coming to them to ask them to like open letters for them or send email, you know, send um, applications for them or stuff like that so that they could... Um, that they could, uh, like, get, you know, get the luck from that person. So 
in their view, that they thought they felt justified. And they called it superstitious luck. They acknowledged that this was a kind of superstition, but they believed that it was a justified kind of superstition, right? So we have these internal and external versions of superstitious luck. Simultaneously, we have internal and external versions of non-superstitious kinds of luck. So the external version, right, this would be one that almost everyone, I think, believes in, and it's the one that's most commonly used in the attribution theory research, which is luck as chance. So luck here would be traditionally chance is thought of as external, though I would argue you could think of internal features as also being the result of chance. But usually it's thought of external, unstable, uncontrollable, right? This is the luck of the die, the luck of the random number generator. We all believe in this kind of luck, I think. Um, there are maybe a small number of people who don't believe in any kind of luck, and they are the people who think that, like, you know, some really radical version of the secret where they therefore believe that everything is controllable by your will in some way. But for the most part, even all the skeptics here right now probably believe in at least this kind of luck um, and that it has some amount of impact on your life, that some parts of you are the result of chance. Uh, you may just not think that all of it is the result of chance. Um, and then we have the internal kinds, right? These are going to be what, what well, I will refer to following Thomas Nagel as constitutive luck. This is the luck of all of your internal features potentially, or at least some of them, right? They are, these could be stable features or they could be unstable features. Um, these could be controllable or uncontrollable. So there could be, you know, you just happen to get cancer, right? Or you just happen to be in a society where your features are preferred. And so you have various kinds of privilege and people treat you differently as a result. So, I, I would say it's probably the case that the majority of people believe in some of these things, but they are less likely to use the word luck when referring to them. So what I found when talking to people and what I find in some of the other research is that people are more likely to talk about luck as being an external thing. And when they talk about internal features like this, they don't think of it necessarily as luck. They may sometimes talk about things like fortune, but... They see it as a different, separate concept for some reason. Um, so now I have to get really philosophical for a second, and I apologize, but I promise it's important. In order to figure out how we should define luck, we have to actually ask ourselves, what do we want from our definitions? Maybe that seems like an obvious question to you. I want my definition to properly describe things, right? But what does it mean to properly describe things? Do you want it to describe the way that people use the word itself? or do you want to give a prescriptive definition where you want to say this thing, like an apple, for example, uh, here are all of the essential properties for something to be an apple only. It should only be used to refer to things that have those properties, right, as opposed to a descriptive approach, which would be I senses how everybody uses the word luck, apple, whatever, and then I just accept all of those descriptive definitions potentially. I just, you know, I just, whatever, everything that comes back is part of the definition. Um, this is to some extent how um, dictionaries are generated. Um, There's a huge debate in philosophy of language about the correct approach to definitions. Should they be descriptive or prescriptive in this kind of way? Um, 
and there are problems for both sides, right? Prescriptivism um, tends to be championed by elitists, right? Individuals who want to say this is the way that words should be used. Anyone using them in any other kind of way is a pleb, right? And I tend to be anti-elitist. So to that extent, I tend to be anti-prescriptivism. Um, I tend to be in favor of people using words in all sorts of very strange ways. Um, but that being said... It is also important, and this is part of the job of philosophy, I think, to try to find more useful and illuminating definitions, to try to figure out which ones can help us better understand ourselves and our world. Um, and conversely, descriptivism, as you might notice here, can tend to kind of give us a mess of inconsistent definitions. So, for example, this is why philosophers kind of make fun of um, philosophy via the dictionary. So if you ever ask someone to define something for you and they just go straight to a dictionary, they're probably not a philosopher for starters uh, because dictionaries tend to just list a bunch of things, some of which are inconsistent, many of which are useless. So here's, this is our good friend Webster. He defined, they define luck as a force that brings good fortune or adversity, right? That seems like it could be literally anything, right? Literally almost anything could be categorized as a force that could bring about either good fortune or adversity, right? This is the classic idea. Any piece of technology could be used to hurt or harm people. So, you know, not particularly illuminating, though we do see the association there between good fortune, though, as I said, some of the literature suggests that, th that many people treat good fortune as a different concept than luck. They see it as a separate internal stable feature and luck as an external unstable feature. Um, another definition here, the events or circumstances that operate for or against an individual. Again, literally everything, right? It's like all the things that are helping you or not helping you, right? Everything is either helping you or not helping you, it seems like. Um, and then finally, we have favoring chance, right? So there's that essential synony synonymous with chance, where chance means random, uncontrolled events. Um, and then down here in the verb section, we have a little bit that helps us out a little bit more, I think. To prosper or succeed, especially through chance or good fortune, usually used without, so... Um, you know, lucked out or to come upon something desirable by chance. Again, we're just seeing mostly reference to chance. And that is, I would say, probably the most common definition. Um, it is unfortunately, in my opinion, not the best definition. So here's where we try to strike our balance, right? I think we want a definition that is useful philosophically, that is as coherent as possible, which is to say it takes into account as many of our intuitions about what should count as luck and also as many you know instances and at the same time it acknowledges that some intuitions may not be reconcilable if we truly have incoherent definitions about this concept so that gives us our psychology that gives us our motivations that gives us our philosophy of definitions finally i want to talk a little bit about the philosophical literature on the definitions of luck. So philosophers, of course, not deigning to look at human, you know, what normal plebs actually think about this will just come up with their own accounts and argue for them using the kinds of hypotheticals that I presented to you at the beginning of this talk. Uh, and the three kind of categories, broadly speaking, of definitions of luck that emerge from the literature uh, are chance, modal fragility, and lack of control, 
All right. And I'll work through each of those. And there are, of course, subversions of each, but I think we can just talk about them broadly speaking here. So first of all, we have the one you're now hopefully familiar with, the random, unlikely, unpredictable. And it's actually a little trickier than you'd think to give a necessary and sufficient account of what it means for something to be chance. Some people think of it as involving predictability. I don't think it necessarily has to. Some people think of it as involving just randomness, though you might feel that like if you had a random number generator with a very, very tiny weight on it, it would still be chance. It would have to have a, a large enough weight to be predictable for it not to be chance. So you see the, the trickiness of even trying to nail down that conventional common definition. Um, then you have uh, what is, you know, the most philosophically obtuse definition possible, I would argue. This comes from a epistemologist who uh, decided to delve into this via the luck epistemology side of things. Um, and he presents an argument for uh, what he calls modal fragility. Um, modal fragility means that the event is unlikely to occur in nearby possible worlds. Um, so for those of you who didn't get to take metaphysics in college, you can think of this as the Mighty Ducks approach. Okay. Uh, now, for the Brits who are not familiar with this important piece of Americana, first of all, obviously go watch Mighty Ducks. It's really important. Um, you clearly have bad cultural luck if you haven't gotten to see this yet. Um, but I prefer this example not just because Emilio Estevez looks like I think most people do when you say the words modal fragility to them, um, but also it's a story that he tells repeatedly in this first movie of a you know important series. Um, this is this guy is an individual who's like. He's rich, he's, but he's miserable, and he blames his unhappiness on this one, you know, shootout in a hockey game where he shot the, you know, he was the shooter and he shoots the puck and it, like, hits off of the goal post and it bangs away and he doesn't, you know, doesn't get the goal. And he always keeps saying, you know, half, you know if it had just been a half an inch to the left, it would have, you know, it would have worked out. It would have been... Um, right for me. I would have, I would have won or something like that. You know, and at one point somebody kind of shuts him down by saying, um, yeah, but if it had just been half an inch to the other direction, you would have missed entirely. Right. Um, and so the way I think about this is that, you know, I think of those kind of events, um, as being events where we are sort of made keenly aware that things could have gone either way or something like that, even if they really could only have gone deterministically one way. Um, and basically, you know, the modal fragility account, I would say, doesn't actually tell us about the nature of luck. It tells us about how we as individuals come to become aware of the problem of luck in a sense, that we become aware of it through the occurrence of events where we think when we think about it, we don't think that they would actually occur that way in other possible worlds, right? So, for example, you know, the situation I gave at the beginning about the individual who, you know, leave, gets to leave work early and manages to get home and save their child just in time, right? The odds that you would get to leave early and it would be on the day where the child is about to get hit and that you would get there just in time in that way seem like they wouldn't occur that way in a range of other nearby possible worlds is the way this argument kinds of kind of works. Whereas the like oh, well, you hit a puck in a shootout and it didn't go in, you know, most of them, they don't go in a lot of the time. So, like, that doesn't seem like it's particularly what he calls modally fragile. Um, now, 
All this being said, I don't think you need to think too much or worry too much about the modal fragility concept because I don't think it actually tells us the nature of luck. At best, it tells us that like what we become aware of in certain situations is that we are living in what we feel like is a very unlikely universe. Um, and in that sense, it really just piggybacks on the chance concept. It piggybacks on like the unlikeliness idea. Um, so... Now I'm just going to give you what I think to be the actual best account of luck, and I'll explain what the implications are a little bit, uh, which is the lack of control account of luck. I think all of the things that we've been talking about here today, that whenever we're talking about luck, what we're really talking about is the inability to control something, which includes inability to control the random number generator. It includes other things like privilege. Um, and basically, the, the question then becomes what kind of control do we mean, right? Because I'm not going to say that you don't have the ability to pick up, you know, a glass of water, you know, assign your name or something like that. Um, but we do want to understand which kind of things are out of our control in the way that we don't want to hold people responsible for them. Because that's really what we care about, as I've said, with luck is it comes back to things like attribution. What are, Who are we attributing the outcome to? And if it's to the individual, should we hold them responsible in that way? What then is the right sense of control? Uh, here we have a couple of options. You have, as I was just describing, the kind of basic causal influence where I pick up my glass and take a sip because my throat's dry. Um, or we have something like what's called reasonable reflexivity. Um, this is what compatibilists will often talk about when they want to try to argue that free will and, and moral responsibility are compatible with determinism. They'll argue that um, you as an individual, if you uh, have the kind of rational moral decision-making capacity and psychological capacity to control your behavior in the sense of like you can resist the urge to just kill somebody or something like that um then you are responsible that you then then we'll count that as being sufficient um for you having that kind of control folks like me are skeptical of that because we think that your ability to do any of those things is itself the result of luck um and so i argue for what is called the causal dominance account, I call it, because what you have to have is complete dominance over everything that goes into an event, right? You have to have the whole causal chain leading up to an event has to be under your control in some way, for, you know, like you're in, in, in your causal influence for you to be able to say that you are sort of, that it was under your control, that it was not the result of luck. Um, that is the only way to prevent luck from infecting that event is the way to think about this. And of course, that's impossible um, unless you believe in things like an unmoved mover, an uncaused cause, a soul, something like that. Um, there's nothing, there's no way you're going to have control over all the things going into any event in your life because of all the reasons that you can think of. And so as a result, um, you get this view that it's luck all the way down. Um, which I do think is the most coherent account of luck, actually, that like if you take this robust control account, that this actually accounts for all of the intuitions that we have other than the intuition that some things aren't luck. Um, and some of you right now might be thinking of the things that you um, don't think actually count as luck. And in the literature, in my experience, in my own personal research, the things that are most often on that list are hard work, drive, perseverance, grit, and choice, right? So 
the first cassette are all clustered together. They often are synonymous in some way for people that they're like your ability to keep doing the thing. Um, and this is why I asked you at the beginning, right? The survey question, if a person is born with an illness that causes chronic fatigue, making it impossible for them to do strenuous work for extended periods. So they literally can't do hard work. If you think that that's the result of luck, then their ability to do hard work is the result of luck too. It seems like, right. Uh, similarly, with any other kind of feature like that that you would attach it to, even with choice, right? So your ability to choose, even your ability to choose, right, is predicated on the idea that you are not born into a society that prevents you from choosing things, that like deprives you of that ability, prevents you from developing your capacity to make good and bad choices. Um, similarly, right, if you were in a society that because of, let's say, gender laws prevented you from learning to work hard, you would not have, you might not have that capacity through no fault of your own, it seems like. Um, so, Conversely, right, if you're not born into one of those societies, if you're not born with one of these kinds of chronic illnesses or other kinds of psychological features, any number of features that might undercut your ability uh, to make choices or um, to work hard, that too, it seems like, would be the result of luck. So it seems like luck infects all of these things equally. If you disagree, you can feel free to ask questions with examples. I will happily discuss why I do not think that they count. Um, that said, right, if that's luck, then the capacity for hard work, all the things luck, what does that then mean for us, right? So we're getting near, near, the, near the end here. Um, I wanted to use this particular example. This is a new example for me uh, because somebody, obviously, now that I've, I've become the luck guy for various people, I get sent things like this. And this is actually from a legal case. This was from a case of an individual who committed arson um, and accidentally killed somebody um, because they didn't know somebody was in the home. Um, and in the case, they referenced the problem of moral luck. Now, um, this, sorry, in this case, they actually, if you read it, they're not referencing it to um, do what I think luck should be referenced to do, which is in gender compassion, they actually then dismiss this kind of problem and say, you know, they essentially rely on a consequentialist account to say consequences matter and they should face the response, you know, the consequences of their actions, um, not just their intent. Um, and that may be still potentially an ethical thing that you should do. It may be the case that we decide as a society, we do still want to hold people accountable for consequences to some extent. I don't think they're morally responsible though. Um, and I think that creates attention for us in our society. Um, so the more that we talk about this stuff, the more that we move towards hopefully a more unified and coherent account of luck, the more that we can address its role in our educational system, in our, you know, so we have young people, for example, who get treated as, um, you know, bad students, essentially, where bad indicates that they don't test well or they can't concentrate well. But that really reflects, you know, uh, concretizing a, a, a reinforcing of some bad luck that they have. You know, it could be environmental, it could be um, internal, but what, whatever it is, they then get labeled in this kind of way and it creates this reinforcement mechanism. Um, so we, we can correct for things like the fundamental attribution error, right? Um, I don't think that you're going to ever get perfect at not 
treating other people slightly worse than you treat yourself. But I do think you can get better at recognizing, oh, that other person also has extenuating circumstances. It's not just me. Um, I think, and then by extension, in particular, it makes us better skeptics, right? We can look at the people that we are trying to help who believe in whether it's conspiracism, whether it's woo, whatever thing it is, even if it's harming people, we can have a little bit of compassion that they too are, you know, the products of bad luck in this kind of way. Um, and this can ultimately, I hope, drive social progress. So, and I'm a little over, so I'll leave it there. Um, here are the, all the various places. If you, you can find me, if you are unlucky enough to want to hear me talk anymore at this point. Um, thank you all so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Um, and good luck. Well, welcome back, everybody, to Skeptics in the Pub Online. Uh, I can see during the break you've all been asking loads of really interesting questions, so we're going to put those to our speaker right now. So please welcome back in the chat Aaron Rabinowitz, uh, who gave our fantastic talk this evening on luck. And Aaron, um, given that... Uh, everything that's been happening, uh, we did have the question, um, was it luck or just coincidence that the royal family's momentous tweet occurred only minutes before the start of this evening's Skeptics of the Pub Online rather than during <laughs> it? Um, I will point out at this point that this was very much correlation and not causation. We are not responsible for anything that has happened, any regicide that has happened uh, during the course of uh, today. No, it goes the other way around. The death of the Queen is the cause of this talk. Right, I see. Because it came first. You do have the strangest rider. We've said this before. You you should lessen <laughs> your demands. Because we can only do this once. Like, if we're going to have you back, it's yeah, it's, it's costly. It is costly. Um, but somebody yeah. did actually have uh, a follow-up question to that, saying that it was suggested that um, the king would reign under a different name because the previous kings called Charles were unlucky. Um, it seems he's not gone with that. He has gone with King Charles III. Um, but has belief in luck influenced other worlds events in unusual ways that you're uh, you're aware of oh uh yes for sure and i'm, I'm trying to like get given like 20 minutes in google i could probably find you some like really choice examples but like there are for sure i mean like attribution theory as we talked about and explained in the talk right is something that applies to all human beings including leaders so mm -hmm. leaders attribute outcomes to good and bad luck so if you know if you lose a battle you might think that that was proof of bad luck if you win a battle you might believe that that proves that you are lucky so you have for example alexander the great basically cooking his way across an entire continent mostly on the belief that he deserved to do it um you know, and, and that kind of stuff comes down to belief in these these kinds of ideas. You also have examples, obviously, of people in positions of power, you know, drawing on superstitious forms of luck in their decision making from the drawing of auguries in Rome to Ronald Reagan's wife being really into astrology and other kinds of stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, I would say, you know, our understanding and our thoughts about luck has impact. Um, and then, of course, luck itself has an un absurd amount of impact that, like, again, we would I think we would just say that history is just luck all the way down. Mm. Um, and that that kind of undercuts both the like great man and great narrative theories of history that sort of suggests that, like, there is some sort of normative or or thematic arc to history as rather than just being a you know a clusterfuck
Yeah, yeah. Um, well, those are questions from Paul Picticule and Gray the Earthling. Uh, I want to move on from the UK and our monarchy into the American uh, version of luck. So Andrew Kay asks, the American dream of work hard and anything is possible, is that luck or not luck? And does your analysis demonstrate the fallacy of the notion of the American dream? Yeah, 100 um, percent. I appreciate you being a plant in the audience to ask that question, Andrew, because, <laughs> uh, yeah, this is this is one of the major implications for the work that I'm doing is that it's meant to push back on uh, meritocratic um, toxicity, I would say, or toxic meritocratic beliefs or just meritocracy in general. You know, there's a lot of discussion about this idea and y'all, you know, being on your side of the pond, y'all know that the word was originally a joke before we all over here decided to take it as a really serious concept. Um, but yeah, this whole idea of pulling, you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps or something like that. These are all different versions of believing that some some internal entity has the capacity to act above and beyond the luck of circumstances of constitution of everything and thereby be responsible for praise if they succeed and blame if they fail. Um, so if you think of the American dream as the idea, not just that, like, if you work hard, you can succeed, which we I think we all know is false in the sense that many people who work very, very hard do not, in fact, succeed. Mm. Um, and many people who don't work hard, in fact, succeed quite a, quite a great deal. Um, there is also the undercutting of the American dream in the sense of the kind of just world theory, which a lot of Christian Americans bring to the American dream, which is it's a just society. So the people who don't succeed, it's their own fault and not the result of something like luck. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I must admit, when you say that uh, we uh, knew that the word meritocracy was uh, a joke, um, it's hard to deny that when we're living in a country where Liz Truss just over just took over from Boris Johnson as the leader of the country, and Prince Charles is now the head of state. So it's very difficult to to uh, to believe too closely in meritocracy while living here. But that does kind of lead me to a question fair, I wanted fair. to ask, which is: once you uh, accept this 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 worldview which i completely agree with that's so much and pretty much everything is down to look how do you then stave off essentially nihilism of well if this is all look then nothing matters do you stave off nihilism or do you just lean directly yes. into embracing Easily. the void i guess i mean i i, I happily embrace the void but i also find nihilism of the sorts that i think are bad pretty easy to stave off um, so I think there are a couple of kinds of nihilism that are at concern here, which is uh, nihilism about the self, nihilism about the meaning of life or the meaning of one's actions, and then nihilism about things like morality and and by and maybe maybe moral responsibility, right? So we want to connect all those things. Um, so what are the things that I think go away on this view? I do think we have to jettison the idea of moral responsibility in the sense of holding people morally responsible. I don't think it makes any sense. I think just desserts has to go with it as well. I think moral claims themselves survive. Um, so it's still wrong to kill somebody. Um, you know, it's just if you happen to be constituted in such a way where you don't understand that and so you go on a killing spree, that is ultimately the result of luck. And we should think about that and how we set up our justice system, for example, that it is more compassionate and less punitive. Um, the 
other kinds of nihilism that I'm, I think we are more concerned about actually avoiding are nihilism of meaning in our lives and like nihilism of, of moral motivation, if not moral truths. I don't think either of those goes away because I think um, the reason that I do things is because I, you know, like I think certain things are functionally intrinsically valuable, right? I think reducing suffering, promoting flourishing, um, you know, creating a more just society, that these things are good in themselves and are good. And, and like, even if it turned out that my ability to contribute to them is like entirely the result of luck, I still want to contribute to them and I still will go about doing it. So I will have, I think, both the motivation and I think the philosophical justification to do so, because we can say, you know, luck doesn't, un you know, it doesn't undercut the fact that a world in which fewer people is suffering, so fewer people are suffering is a good, it's a better world and I can help bring that about. It doesn't undercut that if like my ability to do so is the result of luck and whether I ultimately succeed is the result of luck. I don't think like it might, it might, make it um we might feel more depressed sometimes maybe um but i think other times we can feel more actually invigorated by this view i think we can because the other view the american dream one that we were talking about a second ago mm. can lead people into a spiral of thinking that they just can't do things because they have failed and that they're you know they deserve to fail in this kind of way um and if you can help people sort of break out of that spiral they can actually get back into moving in, in more um, positive directions. So I think it's a, a, a less nihilistic view um, in that sense. Um, similarly, like, I don't think you're just going to stop acting because the reason you eat is because you're compelled to do so, essentially, right? Like, I, I don't think there was a kind of, ra you needed to do it from radical free choice for it to be valuable to you. Um, I think we value things for other reasons. Now, we do we do value the narrative that we like to tell ourselves of, I'm the good person doing the good thing and I deserve the praise for it. That's got to go. I agree on that. That's going to go away. But you can replace that with better things too, like, um, in you know, the intrinsic valuing of the moral act itself, the enjoyment, you know, as Aristotle would say, yoking that enjoyment to the right action, not to any sort of praise or blame or anything that you get from it. Um, you can also, you know, there are other ways that I think you can find value in actions that doesn't involve, you can, you can talk about gratitude, right? Like gratitude work in mindfulness is almost entirely a luck work, essentially. It's helping you acknowledge all of the things that weren't under your control that contributed to your good outcomes. Um, and that's that's a positive reinforcing system, I think. OK, so we have another question here from Wayne, uh, who asks, has there ever been a study for a, into a link between moral behavior in life causing an increase in luck? Uh, he wants to know if he's wasting his time in trying to be good. Is it a complete waste of time? <laughs> <laughs> right. So if you mean the superstitious kind of luck, there certainly is lots of people. Who, I think there are lots of people who believe that you can increase your superstitious luck by behaving in, pro in, in the right ways, And that's not just knocking on wood. Um, I would actually be curious how many people here either say the phrase knock on wood or actually knock on wood sometimes in their lives, because I have a bit of a running suspicion, let's say, that like everybody has at least one superstitiously skeptical superstitiously lucky behavior even fully skeptical people i think have at least one thing that they do that's like the full on like um uh, pascal's wager with luck kind of situation essentially yeah. right um but 
Yeah, there there haven't been obviously any studies of that, but there certainly are studies of people's beliefs about how good behavior produces good luck and bad behavior. And again, this is tied to this concept of the just world theory, which is, I think, one of the more pernicious widespread views. And it's one that I think, you know, um, atheists and skeptics to a large degree are more inoculated from, which is a good thing. Um, and that I think makes them hopefully more receptive to adopting this, this alternative kind of luck view. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see, we, we have uh, an enlightening round for, from Eagle, uh, who, who asks, uh, just to enlightening round you back for a bit, since you do it to all of your guests on the show. Uh, so Eagle asks, totally is fair. luck real, is chance real, and is determinism real? Yes, yes, and yes. Okay, now, normally in an enlightening round, you're not allowed to expand on your answers. I'm going to ask you to expand a little bit on uh, on all three. I think we've we've covered luck, but chance and determinism? Sure, I mean, I think... Well, let me just caveat this by saying I am not a philosopher of math. So when I say chance is real, what I think is when I roll a die, like whether it's one or six, there's no, you know, certain there's no way to be certain about it. There's no way to predict it or control it or anything like that. It doesn't have any connection to the previous role in any kind of way. All those sorts of kinds of things. Is there true, pure, random chance in the universe? I don't know. Like, um, like if you if you think, you know, maybe maybe you think it on on one kind of account of determinism where all the events are just locked into place, which I think is an understandable account of determinism, we wouldn't have chance because everything is technically predictable and everything is technically not unlikely is everything is incredibly likely because it's the only event that's going to occur, right? Everything has a, a likelihood of one in that sense. Um, so in that deterministic universe, you, you might argue there's nothing like chance. And I think that I'm, I'm fine with that. I think there, I would just say we have an experience of chance at our level, right? At the level of medium sized dry goods like you and me until we have an AI that can predict all of the outcomes, which I don't think we will, like we're going to always have this experience of this thing called chance and it will have a meaningful impact on our lives and things like gambling and gaming and whatever. Hmm. Um, let's see, we've got a question here from Karen Tankerous, uh, who asks, uh, should we cease using the term look? Would that be advantageous in any way, in your opinion? And what would, we, would be the negatives? I assume this sounds like she's asking about the the term, the, the colloquial use of the word look as in lucky rather than what you're talking about in terms of moral look and kind of that, that determinism. Uh, I go quite the opposite. I, I think we should use it more. I mm. think we should talk about how more things classify as luck, literally everything, but like... Um, now there are the potential negative implications that you, your question alluded to, which is if you don't sort of scaffold people into this way of seeing things in a, in a way that, um, gives them alternative motivations and stuff like that, that they could potentially slide into some kinds of nihilism. Um, but I think overall what we want to do is help people go from the things that they already acknowledge are luck and help them recognize that there's not really any difference between those things and the things that they are holding out on not seeing as luck. And by doing so, we will give them a more coherent internal worldview. We will give them a more coherent account of luck. And hopefully their behavior towards people who have experienced good and bad luck will improve as a result. So, for example, I have found at least some anecdotal evidence through my you know experimental 
uh, interviewing stuff that conservative individuals may be less resistant to talking about luck than privilege. So they have a very politicized adverse reaction, a lot of them, to the word privilege. But if you talk about luck, and especially if you're willing to talk about good and bad kinds of luck that can apply to everyone, um, they can get on board with a lot of that. And it can kind of diffuse the pushback that I think you often see to privilege discourse, which is, but what about the fact that I grew up X, Y, Z? You know, but what about, you know, this thing that I had to deal with or something? You know, yeah. but I work, I worked hard because of blah, 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 right? All of those narratives, I think, are attempts to going back to the meritocracy stuff, right, to to prove one's merit in this kind of race that we all think that we're in for having social merit. And the luck discourse kind of short circuits all of that, hopefully, and helps people jump out of that rat race, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think so. Um, I think you've already asked, there's a question from Nadia, which I think we've already touched on, where she asks, how do you motivate yourself to keep on working and trying hard if it is all just luck, which I think we've, we have already touched on. But it brings me into something that, Igor's asking, uh, which is, do you think humanity would benefit from everyone thinking that it's all luck and should we teach it in schools? Um, I actually have a kind of a, a, an add-on to that is, do you think there's a downside to teaching everybody that everything is luck in the sense that you might find it a uh, a, a version of the world, a picture of the world that you find gives you clarity, but is that uh, mm -hmm. scalable to society or does society need to believe in structures of things that are more than just luck in order to allow social yeah. function at a grand scale. Yeah. And I mean, speaking purely empirically, I don't know. Like, I really don't know. Um, I was talking with Corey Clark about this. Who She does research into belief and free will stuff. And like she, I think, leans a little bit towards the like noble lie free will approach where it's like we should tell people that they have free will so that they don't start acting badly. Um, and you know, her advice was like, why don't you do a little, a few studies before you start engaging, you know, like in widespread implementation of a new model or something like that. Right. And I'm like, yeah, totally agree. Right. This is, this is serious stuff. You don't want to, you don't want to mess around with people's personal narratives without knowing what the implications are going to be. Because like there is at least some attribution theory research that suggests that if people, you know, believe that their outcomes are the result of a kind of what I would call a kind of luck that they can't change, it will demotivate them. And if you don't help them understand that saying something is luck doesn't mean it, it can't change, then they can end up in that demotivated place, which I think is a reasonable concern. Um, I think it's also reasonable to be concerned that like maybe I really like this idea, but like certain kinds of personalities will have a really negative reaction to it and it will like hurt them because it'll cause them to spiral into some kind of depression or something like that. Mm. Um, <clears throat> I would say I haven't directly encountered that yet. I've certainly had individuals go through the sort of small dark night of the soul experience of like, this is upending a lot of my worldview in a variety of ways, but they often, you know, they, they consistently, I have sort of come out of it happier as a result. Um, but I also, the other major concern would of course be, this is, you know, fairly, I think it's more accessible than talking about free will, but it's still fairly complicated stuff and it has some counterintuitive moves to it. And if you're handing it out to people and trying to get them to teach it, how many of them are going to consistently effectively teach it in a way that emphasizes the right parts enough is a fair question. Like, what are the odds of this being consistently mistaught versus effectively taught, I mm. think are reasonable concerns. Um, but I do think there is a curriculum that can come out of this work um, that is 
fairly easily applicable even for non-philosophy teachers and accessible for non-philosophy students and that can have positive results for people in general at least compared to the alternatives which i think are leading to the kind of toxic meritocratic behavior where we're all low-key or less low-key not even low-key we're high-key workaholics right so you have um what they call conspicuous production um this is the behavior where you try to signal that you're working on 10 different things and you're working 50 hours a week and all that sort of behavior um, because it, again, signals your merit. Um, yeah, so I think it could help. My, my experience is 100% of my students are experiencing that. Um, and when I talk to them about this stuff, it helps some of them experience some relief from that kind of mentality. Yeah, I mean, as someone who chats to you quite regularly, I felt personally attacked by that <laughs> that final point you made, but I'm glad you weren't uh, directing it specifically uh, at me. Um, you mentioned free will there. There's a, a question from someone called Skeptical Fella um, who may have missed your previous talk for us because they ask, um, how does the concept of luck relate to the question of free will? Um, if there's no free will, is everything just down to chance? Is there free will? Yeah, and I didn't get into the free will stuff on this one because, you know, only 45 minutes and I wanted to give you all some psychology because I assumed, you know, you'd heard enough of me blathering on about philosophy. Um, but, you know, it's it's an important question because that is that is the key related concept here. And I think the luck stuff makes it more accessible for folks because when you talk about free will, what often happens is you get wrapped up in weird discussions around physics and determinism versus indeterminism and what is choice and what is it, you know, like that kind of stuff and could have done otherwise. Like you see some of that in the luck literature, but I think it's more untangleable because in the luck stuff, you really get it. You can focus in on the control question. Um, now, to answer the question, they are connected in the sense that if I am right and it's luck all the way down, then it is true that there is no such thing as free will, by which we mean the thing that would hold that would be necessary to hold someone morally responsible, which I think is the right understanding of free will, I think. And this is backed up by the psychology as well. The psychology research suggests that when we talk about free will, what we're doing is we're talking about responsibility. We're talking about whether we're going to hold someone specifically morally responsible. And there's good evidence, I think, that um, or at least some evidence we could say all of this, you know, like all of this kind of stuff is a little questionable because of the instruments being used and also because of the kinds of complex philosophical concepts being used. It's very hard to know that people, you know, mean what you think they mean. Um, but I would say there's good evidence that um, belief in free will rather than the traditional understanding was that belief in free will drives a desire for punitive justice. If you believe that someone did something freely, you have a greater desire to see them punished for their bad actions. And new research suggests that it's actually free will belief is an ad hoc rationalization that happens after the desire to punish. Yeah. And you see it more commonly amongst conservatives because conservatism is strongly associated or somewhat associated, let's say, with a desire to punish. Yeah, um, yeah. So that would be the connection between all of those ideas. And yeah, I think you reject. we should reject free will. We, we should say it's luck all the way down. We should reject punitive justice by extension. Um, all, you know, and like the conservative worldview, like the conservative worldview just needs to collapse under the, like, and I think I was talking with Lindsay about this the other day. Uh, and, you know, we were saying that like, social sciences, the conservatives have long known that social sciences are their enemy, and they are, because social sciences undercut the conservative worldview because they keep pointing to all the things 
that prove that it is not an individual radically choosing not to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Yeah, yeah. I guess when it comes to the intuitive belief in in luck and free will, um, may, maybe this isn't borne out, but it, it seems to me like people intuitively believe in the free will, in their own free will for the good things that happened, uh, that, that happened in their lives, and look for the bad things that happened to them. And then when it comes to externally looking at other people, it's look for the good things and free right. will for the bad things. That person did that terrible thing because they chose to, but they're in that elevated position because they were lucky they got there. And it's never that you, you apply it completely in reverse when you're in the elevated position or you've behaved badly. Right. And what you're describing right there is that at fundamental attribution error just with free will sort of subbed in for moral responsibility mm. in that, or, or responsibility in that situation. And I 100 percent believe that's what's happening a lot of the time that like if you believe in free will, it creates a space for you to do that kind of maneuvering, where if you believe in my view there's no difference between you and the other person. You're both luck all the way down. So there's no, there's at least less of an urge to anger, for example, I think. You will still, you're still an organism. You're still going to react, but like it's, it comes down quicker as you see in the mindfulness work, I think, where like you are more easily snapping back from those judgments and you're more, you're also, I think, better able. In, so, there, so there's a flip side of this. You know, we don't always do it that way. So if you have certain kinds of mental illnesses like depression, for example, you do the inverse and you blame yourself for everything and you never, you know, all the good parts of you are the result of luck. All the bad parts are the result of you personally choosing to be a terrible person. Mm -hmm. And so this can, I think, help let people off the hook if they have certain kinds of like anxiety issues or depression issues like that as well. And like the important thing to stick to is the original version, the thing you were describing is hypocritically inconsistent in a way that is unlikable by everyone once you point it out. And that's the that's the whole ball game. Like that's what we're getting rid of. And once you get rid of that, like in theory, a lot of good things happen. Yeah. And in terms of um, what you get rid of when you start picking at uh, at that free will, there's an anonymous question that asks, is religiosity a path of attribute theory, a path of attribute theory in search of what you call, you know, look, lady look, yep. moral look, or is religiosity just thirst for justice, entitlement, defensive mm. elitism, mm. etc.? Yeah. So I think religion plays a, a fascinating multifaceted role, right, in all of this stuff. Um, there is, of course, the theory of the rise of religion, that it is connected to our, in, you know, improved psychological capacity for attribution, right? We attribute causes to animate beings and by extension start attributing them to inanimate beings, attributing them to the universe itself, and then we end up with God or something, right? We start with tree spirits and end up with monotheism or something. That's one, you know, you can you could debate that approach or not. But yeah, I do think whatever is true, religion is very closely connected to um, the fact that we are attribution-driven creatures and how we do that attribution, that religion is about controlling and shaping our attributions by talking about things like original sin or whatever, right? Like, um, and then, of course, you have the other connections of what I think there's, there's some psychological evidence that there is a correlation between um, superstitious beliefs in luck and religiosity, as well as things like uh, gambling behavior, 
right? Um, because they all involve magical thinking is the way that um, Matt from Guru Pods has put it to me, right? It's basically they all involve believing that you can have an, you have an ability to control the uncontrollable in the universe to some extent, um, whether it's through prayer, you know, the right, right ritual or something. Yeah, so it's I think it is about these are systems for you know, teaching us how to think about luck and also systems by which we believe that we are able to control luck. And so it's a giant, messy, interconnected structure. I also think that you find the same people who are arguing for maintaining the noble lie of free will are pretty often arguing for maintaining the noble lie of religion because they think that both of them are necessary for st social stability and cohesion. Um, and I think we should just be moving in the opposite direction. Yeah, it's, it's very much that. Well, I don't believe, but those people over there, they need to believe, so let them have it. And, and I'm not sure that ever uh, necessarily leads you to a very positive place uh, when you're, you've got that kind of um, patronizing or paternalistic approach to other people's ability to access reality. Um, but you talked about um, the, the gambling aspect in there. And that brings us to a question from Serdar, who uh, asks, what would be the tipping point moving a gambler from the I was unlucky point to the well, the game must be rigged point? Because both statements seem to work for the same cause. Have you any thoughts around that? Yeah, I'm not... Um... I'm not as like deep into the literature, I would say, on gambling. The reason I've, I've looked at the gambling stuff a little bit is because a lot of the analysis of belief in luck, like I said, is about superstitious belief in luck, which has mostly focused on gambling because it connects to this specifically harmful behavior that's connected to that kind of superstitious belief. Um, it's more measurable as well. It's much easier to study gambling as a, as a version of, uh, of uh, superstition compared to other forms of superstition where the outcome isn't directly measurable. Right, right. So uh, other examples might be looking for like the effectiveness of prayer in hospitals or something. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I would, yeah, for sure. Um, and, and like also it's because a lot of money coming from, you know, laws against, you know, laws taking money from gambling and putting it towards trying to address gambling addiction leads to the studying of gambling psychology, which leads to the studying of gambling fallacies, which leads to how we think about luck, because a lot of gambling fallacies are just misunderstandings of the nature of chance or luck. Mm. Um, so what causes those misunderstandings is I guess what the question was here. And it's, it depends, right? It's a lot of different things for different people. Um, so there's some people, there's some arguments that some people are psychologically, uh, because of their makeup, potentially more predisposed to believing in um, uh, certain kinds of superstitious luck. Um, it may be that there might be gender differences potentially between this. Um, if you look at like, the percentages of problem gamblers, I, I do think it still leans towards men. That could be because of um, a, a greater likelihood of believing that they have control over things because men just believe they have control over things. Um, so there, there are a couple of theories like that running around. There's also, uh, you know, that it's, it's sort of luck, right? And the idea that, like, if you go into a gambling situation and you have a series of chance events that cohere enough with your narrative, right? You end up believing that you're a lucky person. Um, and I think we're all highly, we're all susceptible to this to some extent, right? The people who I was talking to in my study were not problem gamblers and they, you know, 
had had just come to believe that they were lucky because they had had enough events in their life where they had will in their belief willed something to happen right or like you know there was a event that could have and and again it comes back to these like weird chance events like the puck where it's like the event went their way and if it went their way enough times they came to think that they were lucky and i think you probably would see higher percentages of people believing i actually be really curious to look at if there's more belief in an individual's uh there's more individuals believing that they themselves are lucky at higher socioeconomic statuses. I think that would be a, it would, it would seem unlikely to me that wasn't the case from what I've read in all of this literature. You'd, I, I would think you, I would think you would expect that those people Well, so, you know, what they will end up saying is they're going to say, I was very lucky and I also earned this through hard work. And that was an interesting thing that came up a lot in my discussions with people was that they would simultaneously say, this was a lucky outcome, but I also earned it through hard work. And a lot of times they would even say, I er- I caused the luck through the hard work. So you see yeah. over and over again, people in the like self-help, you know, literature, like you make your own luck by working hard, essentially. Um, and that can be, again, a mix of confirmation biasy events where somebody really, really works hard and they get a break and that's that reinforces that kind of perception. Um, or, you know, people can just come to believe that they are lucky because they also have other superstitious beliefs and that one coheres easily with them and it all just kind of gloms together nicely. And also I think we all are a little predisposed to wanting to be the hero of the story and being lucky as a kind of being the hero of the story. It's saying the universe has picked you to be special a little bit in this kind of way. Yeah, that's interesting because my my instinct would have been that um, people of a higher socio who grew up in a higher socioeconomic status who haven't had as much bad luck at formative parts of their life um, don't get because they don't see the other side of the coin. They come to believe. They might, they might be more predisposed to coming to believe that the coin only has one side and this is just how it is. It's not, look, all these things happen because I deserve them because I work hard, because you aren't subjected to the reverse side of the coin often enough to know that the coin could fall either way. Yeah, I guess what I meant was I, I think there'd be a higher percentage of superstitious luck mm. belief that they were like luck in a, they were lucky in a not privileged way, but in a like, you know, think of like the Greek heroes kind of, you know, fortune favors me because I am special and have a great destiny kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Okay, so yeah. like I'm going to, you know, if, if somebody tells me it's 10 to 1 odds, I'll take those odds because I'm the hero of the story. And it, I, I will, you know, the chance will work out in my favor. Not not just the not so much the like what you're thinking of, which is the, you know, it was all my personal choice and I didn't have any, you know, benefit or something like that. Yeah. Um, though there is an interesting transition that you see happen alongside the transition from the, you know, increasingly now departed um, noblesse, the, 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 the elites who just sort of uh, the rentier, I think, was the term they use for them. Right. The people who just sit around benefiting off of the large, you know, the, the, the wealth they have rather than accruing wealth. Now you have are hyper elite, hyper productive elites who claim and, and show that they deserve all of their billions through their working a bunch and creating all these kinds of things. Um, and those individuals will often tell you 
partly, I think, because they know it's good PR. Oh, yes, I had this bit of luck and that bit of luck, but I also did the hard work and thing. And people love that. They just they eat that up. They think that's the best. Um, So I think the more we can pull people away from those kinds of mindsets about people like billionaires, the more we can claw back all of the wealth they have extracted from society and redistribute it for everyone's benefit, for example. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, We have a question from Dave who asks, are we lucky enough this evening to have any pets present? We always ask about pets. Is Walter present? He was here for the first half. He was here for the talk and he was here for part of the transition. And then at some point he got up and left and I'm sorry. Um, (laughs) He's a very sweet boy. He was very chill for the talk. So I appreciated that from him. Um, if you we go back and watch the video, you can but see I him. think you were just cropped okay. in a way that people couldn't see that you had you had you were dog adjacent constantly. Oh yeah, obviously, totally my fault. I'll crop better next time. Um, <laughs> I can see if, if I can get him to come back before we before we wrap up. Yeah, well, the chances of seeing Mildred, my cat, are incredibly small. She's she's shown a face in here for a, a split second. That is quite enough for her in this room. Um, Igor, mm-hmm. who was asked quite a few questions, he always asks him great questions. Uh, he says, if we drop the concept of personal responsibility, what do we tell victims of genocidal dictators when they call for vengeance? Uh, asking for a friend uh, who's also in Russia, I imagine. Yeah. This, yeah, and this stuff does get hard um, because the hardest bullet to bite in my worldview is probably that no one deserves to suffer, which includes people who do bad things, mm. um, which is which is a really tough pill to swallow for people. I, I, I don't mean this in a like they're being irrational and they should get over it. Like, I mean, in a very understandable, you know, like compassionate, commiserating kind of way when someone when people have been severely harmed by someone else through what appears to have been, you know, a free choice on their part, they don't want to hear about how that person was also, you know, uh, experienced abuse or was, you know, like was motivated by fear or, you know, was radicalized in this way or something like that. They want, some of them at least potentially want um, compensation. They want uh, that pound of flesh kind of thing, that eye for an eye. Um, and, you know, I don't I don't want to be the asshole telling people not to feel their feels. Um, I think it's OK to feel your feels. If you want to hate somebody, you can hate somebody. I'm not here to stop you. Um, I do think at the end of the day, um, no one deserves to suffer. And those people who do wrong, while we need to prevent them from doing further wrongs and we may need to you know, in, you know, have some sort of punishment for the sake of either deterrence or rehabilitation or something. I do think there's good evidence that like restorative justice as a model can often be a better approach for a lot of people. And what 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 um, victims end up finding is that what they really want most is for the person to understand they did something wrong and mm-hmm. for them to genuinely not want to do it again. Um, and that that's more important to them than the pound of flesh. Um, so I think that is more achievable potentially on this view when you're not feeling like you have to hold them uh, accountable in this kind of way. Um, it's, you know, it's hard if like someone hurts someone that I cared about very deeply. Is there going to be a part of me that wants to see them suffer still? Probably. Like, I, I hope, you know, I don't think I believe in free will anymore, but I don't deny probably that I have at least some psychological urges that are still connected to that kind of punitive mindset but i do think that like this will be the work that i will do to help myself not feel 
you know, like I have to hold on to that any longer than feels healthy. Right. So I think it's healthy to be angry. It's healthy to have outrage and it's healthy to let go of that at some point before it could poison you. Um, yeah. So. Um, well, I think that's probably a, a great question uh, for us to end on. We will leave you for this evening. Thanks very much, everyone. And we'll see you next time.